What a joy to be with you this morning and um, to share on this most important of days for us as Christians, Good Friday. And I did, and my family, we felt at home immediately as we came here and as we've worshipped with you. I've been in tears, uh, just so moved by the presence of God in this place. So thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Pastor Mark and Pastor Cathy, for the invitation. Now, the, the day, Good Friday, is really about what it means to come to know God, how, what it took for God to make us become part of his family. And the story is told of a child who asked his father, Dad, how did people come to be born? And his father said to him, well, listen, son, there were two people called Adam and Eve. And Adam and Eve made babies. And their babies became adults. And they made babies. And so on. That's how people came to be. And the boy was a bit confused by this answer. So he went to his mum and he said, Mum, how did people come to be? How did we come about as human beings? And his mum said to him, well, listen, son, we used to be monkeys, and then we evolved to become like we are now. The child was even more confused, and he ran back to his dad, and he said, you lied to me. This is what mum said. And his dad said, no, son, your mum was talking about her side of the family. What does it take to become part of the family? What would it take to become part of the family of the holy, living God Almighty? We've heard some readings this morning, powerfully read to us from Luke's Gospel. I'm sure you'll know that there are actually four Gospel accounts, four eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus. And of the crucifixion of Jesus too. And I just want to read for you a couple of words from Matthew's account as well, which complement what we've heard from Luke. So in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 27, his account of the death of Jesus. And verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. And about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 50, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit, and at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom. Father, as we open your word, we pray by the power of your spirit, you would speak to us, your people, in the name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning, I sense God um, laying on my heart that we were to think together and hear his word together, these three cries of Good Friday that we've heard through Luke's gospel and now Matthew's gospel, three cries that help us understand and begin to feel and experience what Good Friday is all about, which is about how to become part of God's family. And the first cry I want us to hear is this cry from Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, sometimes these words of Jesus from the cross 
have caused confusion to Christians. Perhaps we've met people who don't know the Lord Jesus and who bring these words to us and they say, these words might mean that Jesus couldn't be God. How could Jesus be God and God forsake Jesus? There would be this kind of break in the Trinity that might be some kind of contradiction. Sometimes Christians really worry about these words from the cross. As if, as Jesus dies and he says this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a contradiction somehow in God. How could God even die, some ask. Now I want to suggest to you, church, this morning, that this would only be a problem if the definition of death is that which atheists have. Death as ceasing to exist. In the Bible, death is not ceasing to exist. In the Bible, death is a consequence of sin and it is a state of existence. Spiritual death in this life means to live without Christ. And spiritual death in eternity is still an existence away from Christ under the judgment of God. So at the cross, in taking upon himself, being forsaken by the Father, Jesus suffers hell for us. Jesus suffers that forsakenness for us. And as he speaks those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's doing something more than just saying that sentence. You see, in Jewish culture, if you quoted the first line of a psalm or song, everyone knew the rest of the words. Jesus, in saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is quoting the first line of Psalm 22. And in doing that, he's saying to all of his hearers, yes, I'm saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yes, I am suffering the forsakenness of death for you as a sacrifice. But he's also quoting the rest of the psalm. And what that psalm is, What Psalm 22 is, is a prophetic, specific description of the crucifixion written hundreds of years before. Let's turn to it if you have a Bible, Psalm 22. That opening line, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? This is an expression of the reality of the suffering of Jesus. This is an expression that Jesus is actually suffering. But as we go on, we see this prophetic description of the crucifixion. Verse 6 of Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before. He is despised and rejected. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults at me, shaking their heads. I am a worm and not a man. I'm scorned by everyone, despised by the people. You see, at the crucifixion, Jesus is quoting this psalm, saying, God knew that this would happen. My suffering for this world has been prophesied in my word. And that means we can have a confidence in what is occurring in the death of Jesus. 
Jesus knows what it is to suffer, to be traumatized, to be falsely accused, to be betrayed, to be sold out by those close to him, to be oppressed by people who have power, to be mocked and to be rejected. If you and I have experienced any of those things, we are not alone. The suffering of the Son of God is meaningful. It connects with the real suffering of our world. Perhaps like me, in your life, you've experienced rejection. Perhaps you've experienced bullying. Perhaps you've been tempted to believe that those experiences of suffering make you a failure as a person and even as a Christian. But Jesus' suffering on Good Friday speaks a different word over us. He suffers for us. And by quoting this prophecy, he is saying, I'm going through all of this for you, and it was prophesied hundreds of years before. In verse 8 of Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before the crucifixion of Jesus, people see the man suffering and they say, he trusted in God, let him deliver him. And this is exactly what the insulters say as they pass the cross in all the gospel narratives. So Jesus is telling his listeners, even as the mockers mock, even as the insulters walk past, he's saying to everyone, I knew this would be how it is. And I'm telling you that hundreds of years earlier, this was prophesied, my crucifixion is for you. Verse 14 of Psalm 22 says, I'm poured out like water. My bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax. This is exactly physically what took place at a crucifixion, bones coming out of joint. And the crucified man died by suffocation, died and felt as if they were drowning in their own blood, your heart melting like wax. The Romans thought crucifixion was the most shameful and painful and abhorrent of executions. The Roman statesman Cicero called crucifixion the most cruel and disgusting penalty. The Jewish historian Josephus, living at the time of Jesus, witnessed many crucifixions and he said it is the most wretched of deaths. Verse 15 of Psalm 22, his strength disappears and his mouth is dried up. He's thirsty. Do you remember in the Luke's gospel reading, we heard about the cry of the crucified man, I thirst. In verse 16 of Psalm 22, dogs, that means Gentiles, surround me, evil men encircle me. And then this is astonishing, church. Verse 16 of of Psalm 22, written hundreds of years before the crucifixion, says this, they pierced my hands and my feet. Now we know that crucifixion had not yet been invented when the writer of this psalm was writing. We know that on the basis of the Greek author Herodotus, who tells us that Persians were the first to use crucifixion, and then Alexander the Great took it up for the Greeks, and the Romans learned it from the Greeks. Long before crucifixion had even been invented as a kind of torture by human beings, prophesied by the psalmist, you've pierced 
my hands and my feet. And Jesus, as he's dying on the cross, is telling the world, this was all planned. This was all prophesied. This is not a failure. This is not a defeat. Praise God. Psalm 22 also has the gambling over the clothes. They cast a lot for my clothes, Psalm 22, verse 18. Now, the thing I find most encouraging about this, Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, invokes the whole psalm. Why is this encouraging, church? Psalm 22, verse 24 says this. God has not despised or disdained the suffering of the afflicted one. Verse 27, all the ends of the earth will remember him, this suffering one, whose hands and feet were pierced, whose clothes were divided by lots and gambled over, who died feeling his heart melt in his chest. All the ends of the earth will remember and through him will turn to the Lord. And the families of the nations will bow down to the Lord. In other words, the psalmist is prophesying, the world will be reached, the nations of the world will be reached through a crucified man in history. Let me tell you, church, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me is not the decry of a defeated man. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me is a cry of victory, of defiance over death and evil. It is a cry of desolation as Jesus experiences and carries the penalty for sin. But it is a cry focused on the hope of the resurrection, focused on the hope that this death will redeem the world. And KT, what this means for us is that because of the cross of Jesus, which occurred in history, which was prophesied hundreds of years earlier, you and I can live confident in hope. Even when we feel forsaken, even when we experience disaster, we can live confident in him. There's a pastor I know well who has a ministry of incredible breakthrough in a very challenging part of the world. He ministers in the region between Pakistan and Afghanistan, going into both countries. And um, he's got an amazing conversion story himself, dramatically coming to Christ from a different religion. He was once attacked by a mob who brought petrol with them to burn him. And the Lord sent angels to disperse the mob and deliver him. His name is Daniel. And on one occasion, he was going on a preaching trip into Taliban territory, and he was with two colleagues, and they were in a car. And they were driving together, and um, they'd been preaching the gospel and giving out Bibles and seeing miracles and seeing conversions in that part of the world. And three Taliban vehicles now were chasing them, all heavily armed. And this is Daniel's words. He says this, I'm in the car. We're being chased by three cars with weapons. The river is on one side of us, and across the river is a mountain. 
And we are high up. And we keep driving along the ledge until the road runs out. And the Taliban are behind us and they're getting closer. Daniel says, I said to the others, this is the last day of our lives. Let's pray. And then as I prayed, I opened my eyes and I saw Jesus in the river. And he called to me, Daniel, don't be afraid. I'm with you. I will hold you. Come on. I asked my friends, I told them, I saw the Lord in the river. He's with us. Don't worry. Then the driver nodded and he drove the car off the ridge into the river. It's very high and the river is very deep. And then I saw many doves surrounding the car and we reached the other side of the river. The driver asked, what shall we do here? And I said, you can just change gear. (laughs) He said, we were praying and then we were on the other side. He said, the Taliban reached the end of the road and looked across the river in amazement. Our God is a mighty God. Our God is a God of resurrection. Jesus is, praise God, Jesus' cry from the cross is a cry of suffering and desolation, and it is a cry of defiant hope. The second cry I want to look at this morning is this cry of Jesus as the temple curtain rips from top to bottom. Remember, we heard that in Luke's gospel as well as in Matthew's gospel. Now, you know, KT, the temple was highly sacred. It was the place where the very presence of the holiness of God dwelt. And that meant that Gentiles and women were only allowed so far into the temple. And even the highest of high priests were not allowed all the way in. The temple was heavily guarded. People were not allowed to just come into the place where God was to dwell. And so as Jesus dies by crucifixion on that cross in the very moment that he lays his life down, and as he gives up his spirit, the temple curtain is ripped in half from top to bottom. Now that curtain was the symbolic barrier separating the holy place from the holy of holies. This was where no one could go and live since God is so holy. And let me tell you, church, this wasn't a sort of thin, fluttering neck curtain. It took an extraordinary miracle for this to happen. One scholar writes this, the veils before the most holy place were 40 cubits, that's 60 feet long, and 20 cubits wide, that's 30 cubits wide. And they were of the thickness of the palm of a hand. They were four inches thick. And they were wrought together in 72 squares, which were joined together. These veils were so heavy that in the exaggerated, admittedly, language of the time, it would need 300 men to manipulate one of these curtains. 300 people to move it. That was the barrier. That was the strength of the symbolic barrier between us and the holy place. And as the Son of God 
dies by crucifixion, that curtain or barrier is completely rent open. It is broken through and God breaks it. It's not broken through by a sort of powerful man wanting to take hold of God's presence in some way. God breaks that barrier through the death of Christ. Because of Jesus' death, you and I can be forgiven. You and I can be purified. You and I can be in the presence of a holy God and not die. We can live. What a beautiful and powerful image of the work of God. You see, at the cross, I'm going to give you two theological words now. At the cross, Jesus does something with our muck, with our sin, with our failure, with our missing the mark, with our selfish decisions. And the New Testament uses two theological words to describe what happens at the cross. First word is this, it's the word expiation. Now stay with me. What that means is that the muck and the sin and the filth in us is taken out of us and put on Jesus. In the Old Testament, in the sacrificial system, people would get a lamb and their sin would be expiated. It would be put on the lamb and the lamb would go away into the desert and die, carrying away the sin from the person. And Jesus is the fulfillment of that. So at the cross, he takes upon himself the filth and muck and sin of every single one of us and he carries it away from us. What liberty, what freedom. That barrier can be broken because we're not covered in muck anymore. Second theological word, Katie, is the word propitiation. So Jesus expiates, he carries away our sin, but he does something more than that. He pays the penalty for it. If God is a holy God, there must be justice for moral wrongdoing. And at the cross, Jesus takes upon himself the judgment, the justice of God for that muck that he is carrying for us. So he carries it off us and then he pays for it. And as he does, that barrier is breached. What a beautiful and powerful image. I know of no other religion, no other story that could do this for us. Every other worldview tells you, follow this path to get enlightenment. Do these good works. Make these practices a part of your habit, these five practices or whatever, or sevenfold path to enlightenment. Only Jesus meets us where we are and carries us, carries us into the presence of God. A few years ago, um, I was preaching in a church in Asia and it was to be an evangelistic service. And the pastor had said, we'd love you to come and speak on Jesus' question, who do you say I am? I love that passage. I'm an evangelist, so I was really excited and I'd prepared my message A few minutes before the service began, the pastor said to me, listen, we might have a visiting dignitary coming to the service. If he comes, don't change your message. I said, okay, but why would I change my message? Who is he? He said, I'm not going to tell you who it is. Don't worry. Just don't change it. I said, I am worried now. (laughs) Please tell me who it is. 
He said, it's the grand imam of a particular large Muslim country. He's the leader of the largest mosque in that country, and he might be coming to church this morning. I was like, I wish you hadn't told me. <laughs> so as the service began, sure enough, in came the entourage with flowing robes. The dignitary had arrived, and he sat on the front row. And I had the incredible privilege of preaching Christ, preaching the uniqueness of Christ. Afterwards, we began to talk, and I asked him, how comes you're here in a country not your own, in just a church service? What brought you here? He said, a few years ago, my wife was diagnosed with cancer. We tried everything. She had every medical treatment available, and none of it worked. The Christians in our city heard, and they asked if they could come and lay hands on her in the name of Jesus and pray for her to be healed. This is a context where Christians are persecuted. He said, we were so desperate, we thought, we'll try anything. So they came. They laid hands on the wife of the grand imam and prayed for her in the name of Jesus, and she was completely healed by Jesus. There was no doubt about it. They all knew he knew, his wife knew, everyone knew it was Jesus. A few weeks later, he was traveling on a plane, and the person in the seat next to him was a member of the church that I was preaching at. This person was a businessman, but he made a commitment to God. Everywhere I go, I'm going to share Jesus. Wherever I go, whoever I sit next to, public transport, wherever I am, I'm talking about Jesus. So he struck up an evangelistic conversation with the grand imam of a country. With great boldness, began to talk to him. And as he spoke to him, the man told him the story about his wife. And the guy says, listen, I understand it would be really hard for you to go to church in your country. Next time you're on a trip, I want you to route your business, your trip through my country and you need to do it on a Sunday and come to church. And that's how he'd shown up at church that Sunday. Only Jesus. Only Jesus can heal the sick and raise the dead and expiate our sin and take the penalty of the justice of God for our sin. Third and final cry, and I need to be quick now and finish up. The third and final cry is the cry of the centurion. Luke's gospel mentions it, but Matthew says this. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw all that happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he is the son of God. Now, Perhaps you've been a Christian a long time and you're familiar with the crucifixion story of Jesus. But you know the Romans crucified thousands of people, probably hundreds of thousands of people. And a centurion was a person who had a particular rank in the Roman system and he would have overseen himself. He would have overseen hundreds, if not thousands, of crucifixions. He had witnessed many deaths that physically were like this one, a man dying on a cross. But this centurion, 
a respected person who'd been promoted in his workplace, a person familiar with the mechanics of death and the mechanics of execution, he experienced the cross of Christ and it caused him to conclude the dying man is the son of God. You see, at the cross, the love of God so pours out of Jesus that hardened sinners, hardened people who are good at what they do, take a look at that love and are moved and changed. They realize this is more than something human. This is divine. In fact, the love of God so pours out of Jesus that it's not just the centurion who is drawn to him, even the man hanging next to him on the cross. We heard about him in the reading. He's a thief. He's been convicted of a crime. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' words ring through 2,000 years of history to us today. I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Even as he hangs dying on the cross, Jesus, as he's carrying away, expiating our filth, our muck, our dirt, as he's taking that into himself, even as he's dealing with and propitiating the judgment of a holy God so that we can be forgiven, even as he's doing that, he has capacity to love the man hanging next to him. Today, 20 times in Luke's gospel, Jesus says, today. Luke noticed how much Jesus cares about today. Today, you can be with me in paradise, says Jesus to the thief. I believe, Katie, today, Jesus says to us, today, you can be with me. This is why Jesus has come to die. He's come into this world to be God with us. He's come so that we can be with him. We can be clean enough to be truly with him. Notice how little the man needs to do. He doesn't have to learn any theology. He doesn't have to go through a newcomer's class. Those are great, by the way. But he doesn't have to do that. He doesn't have to know the Apostles' Creed. He doesn't have to have an education. All he needs to do is acknowledge, I'm being punished justly for what my deeds deserve. Jesus, remember me. And Jesus responds to that simple faith. The cry of the centurion, the cry of the thief on the cross, you're the son of God, remember me, makes it personal for us. None of us need to feel lost in this crowd. Today, you can experience the overflow of the love of the living God. Today, today, you can be with me, says Jesus. You can experience love and freedom and forgiveness and breakthrough and healing unlike anything this world has to offer because the Son of God was crucified. So on this Good Friday, let's bow our heads right now and pray 
before the Lord Jesus, remembering his death with, with gratitude and with faith. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A cry of desolation and a cry of defiant hope. We thank you, Jesus, for your death, carrying away our sin, bearing the wrath of God. We thank you, Jesus, that your death caused that barrier to be wrenched open, the temple curtain torn, so that we can come to know you. And we thank you, Jesus, that this is personal, that like that centurion and like that thief on the cross, we can experience your love today. In Jesus' name, amen.